out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the writer, author. It's the one and only Alan Jones, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else has got a new book out which is titled Too Late to Stop Now, More Rock and Roll War Stories, which is the follow-on from his previous book that came out in 2017, titled Can't Stand Up for Falling Down, Rock and Roll War Stories. Probably part one, it's not called part one, but you get the gist. Anyway, this is the second book. Um, Yes, he started, Alan Jones started his life as a journalist with the Melody Maker in the early 70s and then went on to launch Uncut magazine in 1997 and was there for 15 years, which uh, also he was part of that. um, Yes, he had a popular monthly column called Stop Me if you've heard this one before. Anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years, the musical awakening. Alan, it's over to you. In a single moment, probably, uh, I was on holiday with my parents uh, in 1964, June 1964, I think, and uh, I'd heard some music. I'd heard the Beatles, I'd heard uh, the Searchers, uh, but whenever you saw them on the TV, they were always on light, light entertainment shows, dressed in suits. Yes. And they, they seemed about as square as the shadows. Uh, so I was looking for something a bit wilder, I think. And I found it in this record uh, that was played uh, over the tannoy system of the holiday camp that I was uh, at with my parents. And I just really hadn't heard anything like it. And I really wanted to know who would recorded it. So I found out where the uh, camp DJ had his little studio. It was just a small, tiny room. So I knocked on his door and went in and said, you played a record this afternoon. I, it's absolutely fantastic. It, I said, you know, it sounds really wild, really raging. Uh, and I said, it's a long way from, you know, she loves you. And he said, I know what you, you're looking for. It's the new single by the Rolling Stones. And I thought, blimey, right, okay. So when I went home, it was, uh, it's all over now. And as soon as I got home from the holidays, I went out and bought it, and that was the first single I ever bought. Right. So the first, the first music that I felt was being written and recorded and made for me uh, would have been The Stones, then quickly followed by The Kinks, The Who, uh, and The Small Faces. Yes, absolutely. Was it a, a Pontins or Butlins holiday camp you were at? It was uh, Minehead, uh, Butlins holiday camp in uh, North Devon. Fantastic. God, that was the early 70s holiday camps for a few years with our families. So very fond <laughs> memories of that. So when you got to 16, which would have been probably towards the mid to late 60s, did you leave school at that stage or did you go on to A-levels? Um, I'd started my first year of A-levels. Uh, at, at, at that time in the uh, comprehensive school, uh, you got your GCEs first. And then you went on to the sixth form and it was two years in the sixth form. And I already wanted to get out uh, of Port Talbot. It's, uh, I, I grew up in a very, very small town in South Wales, uh, a coastal town, a seaside town. And, you know, nothing ever happened there. And, you know, I'd been reading the music weeklies um, since coming back from that holiday in Minehead, in fact. 
and I was excited by music, but I, I, I never felt any inclination to be in a band. Uh, but my main ambition at the time was to go to art school. And I found out um, that there were three uh, art colleges in the country at that time that took students uh, on their potential or the work they'd already done, if it was very good, uh, without having to get your A-levels. Um, they, they, the minimum requirement was five O levels, which I already had. Um, so I wrote off to them and got turned down by one, told by one art school that they would definitely keep a place for me if I completed my two years at uh, school. Um, the third one in Newport um, accept, accepted me on the spot. Yes. So I hadn't... I hadn't told the school that I was leaving. My parents obviously knew. Um, so I went back to school and announced that I was leaving at the end of the year for art school, which didn't, right. go, down, it didn't go down terribly well at all. So was it fine art that you were into at this stage? Yes, yeah. Right. Uh, but, uh, and I graduated from art school in um, June 1973. Blimey. Um, with a diploma in art and design and a distinction in art history. Which Fantastic. Was so what the, that... They, they were that, that was the equivalent in those days of the first class honours degree. Yes. So at that stage, had you had any feeling or kind of a, a kind of longing to be a be a writer? Was there any kind of person or yeah, music journalist that you thought, God, that that's what I want to do in life? Had you sort of come across, you know, the Rolling Stone and Hunter S. Thompson or any uh, of those? This was uh pre-Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone uh First came out in America in 1969, uh, so that was the year I went to art school, and it, it, it wasn't available, so I didn't have expo any exposure to those American writers for a, at least another two, three years. Yes. Uh, but I loved the, the, the Melody Maker. I loved uh, a, a writer named Richard Williams, who later became editor of Melody Maker. Um, after after a, a brief period away from the paper when he became uh, head of A&R at Island Records. Um, Michael Watts was another really great writer. Chris Welch was always very entertaining. But I never aspired to be one of them. Uh, it, it never never crossed my mind. Uh, I never even wrote a letter to Melody Maker, even though I read it you know, from cover to cover every week. And you know, there was lots in it that I didn't just... Uh, agree with yes. uh, but no it was never a great ambition i i enjoyed writing i enjoyed uh uh english uh, at school uh, and i felt i could put a sentence together uh, i wrote um uh, a th thesis at uh, art school which had included uh chapters on the rolling stones and the velvet underground uh but the thesis itself wasn't about Music or exclusively about music. It was uh, about several other things. Yes. Uh, and the, the music chapters were kind of an aside or a, a little add-on. <laughs> uh, but when I moved to London in 1973, it was with no thought of uh, getting a job on a, on a music paper. I mean, I hadn't read a single writer who inspired that in me. Mm. Uh, and I thought since I had no journalistic training, um, I wouldn't stand a chance of getting a, a, a job there. No. I seem to know I, I, that they, they 
they mainly recruited that well they exclusively at that time recruited their writers um from local newspapers so it would be young journalists who had gone through um you know professional training that it, it, had an education as a journalist, experience on local papers, covering, you know, whatever the local reporters cover, everything from, you know, murders to, you know, mayor's inauguration, um, the opening of a new church, you know, just all solid journalistic apprenticeship being served, yes. uh, which of course I, I had none, none of that. Yeah. And just before that, you would have been at that age where you'd had experienced that sort of the change in the 60s counterculture from, you know, 67 to 70. You'd have you'd have been right there in that kind of moment. How did it? Oh, oh that, that was an incredible moment. You know, yeah. As I mentioned, you know, my, my favourite groups after then had been uh, the Small Faces, the Who, Kinks and, and Stones, our animals as well, I used to love. Yeah. So how did and then you? There was, then there was suddenly 1967, and the, the most important record in my life came came out at that time. The record that had the biggest impact on me ever, and that was the uh, the first Velvet Underground album. Right. I mean, that just changed everything. Yes. Absolutely everything for me. Yeah. Uh, and then then there was also Love with Forever Changes, um, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, the first Pink Floyd album. The whole I mean, business. Was, yeah. So had you got yourself ensconced in that tune-in, turn-on, drop-out kind of counterculture from that period from 66, 67 to sort of 70? Were you, had you embraced the whole package at that stage? Yeah. Well, obviously in 1967, I was in Port Talbot, but there was hardly any culture there, let alone counterculture. <laughs> Uh, but yes, uh, and even at art school, I, I didn't find uh, many people were into the same sort of music. Um, yes, so I didn't. I didn't feel that I was, you know, part of uh, some new movement at art school. I, you know, I, I kept a lot to myself. And, you know, my, my girlfriend and I, you know, just, just listened to our records together. Um, but there weren't that many people were into the Velvet Underground. And what was your what was your first gig you went to in concerts or festivals? Uh, well, the the very first gig by a sort of major name chart group uh, would have been November 1966 in Cardiff um, at the Cardiff Capital. And that was um, the Small Faces. And that was a, a, a revelation. But an even bigger revelation was the second big name artist that I saw. And that was Jimi Hendrix. Uh, um, on a bill with uh, Pink Floyd when Sid Barrett was still in the band, they were supporting him. Mm-hmm. And down the, uh, the, the the bill, there was uh, an Irish group called Air Apparent, and um, the the Nice, um, right? Emerson. Probably for two pound fifty p, wasn't it? Really, but it was something like that. Yes. <laughs> did you? And did they, you? They did two shows that night as well. Wow! I know that was a. <laughs> Amazing They're time. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> Did you go to things like the first Glastonbury Festival, which would have been in your neighbourhood, or Isle of Wight, or any of those kind of things? Were you tempted with the festival scene? Uh, no, I the, the first festival I went to, I, I didn't go to to either of those festivals, but I did go in uh, 1968 um, to 
it was basically a forerunner of the what today is the Reading Festival. It was called the National Jazz Pop and Blues Festival at, at that time. And prior to being sighted uh, uh, in uh, Reading, that year it was at uh, Kempton Park Racecourse in Sunbury-on-Thames. And me and three friends came up from South Wales. Uh, we went to that, and that, that was an amazing weekend. Uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex were on the bill. Um, Fairport Convention, uh, the incredible string band who headlined a, a folk afternoon on the Sunday. Uh, but the nice were on at that bill 10 years after uh, the Jeff Beck group with uh, Rod Stewart, Traffic, a very, very uh, raw uh, Jethro Tull, who was so far down the bill that their name was barely on the poster. Uh, but they stole the, the, the Sunday evening show. They, they were brilliant at the time. It was, it was, long before the you know the cod pieces and the concept albums well and yes. at that time they, they they were a really savage little band well yes and their early records were amazing so um yeah so did you in 1970 don't that to to say 75 were you ensconced in that world that was kind of going towards more prog rock and and sort of serious music in that kind of way was that your kind of go-to place with a bit of you know black sabbath no, I hated prog rock, and I, I, I just absolutely loathed it. All those wizards' hats, the capes, the dry eyes, the you know, the, the Jethro Tull. It was the you know the the cod pieces and the thigh high boots. Oh no, I, I, ju I, I just disliked the entire the whole thing. thing. Oh, I, I had no time for all that virtuosity, all that pomposity all the extended solos, you know, and, you know, you know, rock music seemed to have gone from, you know, two and a half minute bursts of lightning to these great oceanic tomes, you know, tales from topographic oceans, a triple album, <laughs> you know, no individual tracks, continuous pieces of music. No, I, I, I loathed it. I was much more into... Uh, Bowie, I, I, I've been a fan of since the, the first Deerham album. Uh, so 1970, Hunky Dory came out. That was one of my favourite albums at that time. Uh, but then I was heavily into Van Morrison, um, uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Um, who else was in 1970? Laura Nero, The Birds, yes. as ever. Love Still. I remember going to see Love in Birmingham uh, on uh, the the tour um, that coincided with the release of For Sale, which was the album that, that finally came out after uh, Forever Changes. Right. And that was an amazing night to see yes. Arthur Lee, you know, in the flesh. So was was it during that period then, was it as tribal as it was during the 80s with the music scene in your tribe? Did you, was it a particular group that you would you know, sign on to. I say prog rock because I'm I'm of that generation. My brother was seven years older and he he was absolutely obsessed with prog rock. And because I thought he was cool, I, I too became kind of keen on prog rock as well. So it was a bit unfortunate, really. So um, that was mine. But you're, you know, because I was just looking at all the bands you were sort of going to re uh, review during that sort of 74, 75. And that there's a definite vibe, isn't there? With the I didn't didn't know if these were the bands that you loved or not. Oh, um, if we're talking about that that whole tribalism that you mentioned, I, I really wasn't part of any tribe. Um, 
they were a group of uh, the nearest I could come to commentating on this is that uh, in uh, probably my last year or so of uh, art school, we finally had a student union building, a uh, derelict old place. Um, and somebody had uh, got a TV from a skip, I think, and found an aerial to go with it. And they put it in a, a room up on one of the top floors, just tiny room. And every Tuesday night, I think it was, a group of us, the, the, the hardcore music fans at, at the, the art college in my year, say, um, would go up to watch the old grey whistle test. And it, every week it would be like Curved Air, Camel, Argent. I mean, oh, one after the other, all these kind of terrible pop, you know, prog rock groups that I hated. And I would keep up a running commentary, you know, like, where are the Stooges? Where are the MC5? You know, these were the groups that I, you know, I really wanted to, to hear. And all the other people in the room, you know, they're all Moody Blues fans. You know, they had that glazed dead look about them. Yes. That all Moody, Moody Blues fans seemed to have. Uh, and so they used to give me a hard time. They yes. used to really argue back to, to protect their music. So that was the, the only kind of friction I ever had. But the funny thing that came out of that, there was always this little guy sitting in the corner with a massive uh, curly hair. And um, we knew him as Woody at the time. And he, he, he always used to laugh when I was arguing with these guys. Um, and he looked like he might sort of join in on my side, but it always kept very quiet. And um, a couple of nights after one epic shout out with, with the, the, the prog rock fans in front of the old grey whistle test, my girlfriend said, oh, I've been talking to Woody. He'd really love to come around one evening to hear some of the records uh, by the bands you keep shouting about. Uh, and I said, fine, you know, uh, let, let him come around. So he came around. Uh, I played him Roxy Music, Bowie, Lou Reed, the Velvet Underground, uh, the Stooges, MC5. He didn't like any of them. He liked a bit of Dylan and loved the first side of um, um, Exile on Main Street, especially Traveling. Right. Dice, which was like his favorite of the stuff that I played in. Uh, and I never thought this guy at that time uh, had any interest in making music of his own. And I was shocked that he didn't like all these bands that I, I kind of really loved. Um, but he did go on to form a band and he ended up um, in a group called The Clash. It was the young Joe Strummer. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That is just incredible. <laughs> the young Joe Strummer, my God, I wonder. Yeah, I did an interview with a guy called, is it Time and Dog the other night? Oh, he, he was he was talking a lot about the 101ers and Joe and those oh, early. Yeah, yes, yeah and... I, I, I knew Time and when he was in the 101ers. Yeah. Uh, because I, I lost touch with um, Woody or Joe as he, he became uh, when I moved to London. He stayed on in Newport. Uh, he'd actually just started a band or joined a band called The Vultures uh, shortly before I left. Uh, anyway, I didn't see him after that. Uh, but February 1975, I got a call at Melody Maker and it was Woody. And he said, uh, uh, you know, great to talk to you again. Amazingly, you've got this job on Melody Maker. Uh, I've actually got uh, a band that I've just put together. Uh, and we're playing uh, next week at the Charlie Pig Dog Club at the Chippenham in West London in Ladbroke Grove. Any chance you might come down? 
I said, you're not a prog band or anything like that, are you? You don't wear fucking capes. And he went, thought he said, we're capes. We haven't got any fucking amps. You know, no, <laughs> no capes. Don't worry. He said, it's just pure rock and roll. I said, right, I'll be there. That's definitely it. And I went down to see them. And that, that rekindled a, a, an old friendship that lasted in, until Joe died. Wow, that is amazing. God, because I was just, when you were running off those bands playing, I always remember watching, I love watching those interviews that they have back then with Whisper and Bob and people like Keith Christmas and, you know, and, <laughs> and they're, also, they're also serious, aren't they? And, oh, it was so deeply earnest. You know, excruciatingly so. And I'd like Bob Harris on the on the radio. He used to have a great show. Um, I think it was called Sound of the Seventies. He'd be on. Uh, I think it was a Monday or Tuesday night, around six o'clock for an hour. And he played. You know, it's all you know, kind of LA music, West Coast music. So I really dug all that little country that I was, which I was really into uh, yes. at the time. Because one of the other crucial albums, actually, uh, of of the late sixties, almost as important to me as the Velvet Underground and Nico was the Flying Burrito Brothers' Gilded Palace of Sin. I mean, that turned me on to such an amazing new kinds of music. Yes, God, I do remember when John Peel played uh, Wild Horses. It was just amazing. I think it was, yes, that was Graham Parsons, wasn't it, God? I should yeah, that, yes. that was uh, uh, on the second Burritos album, Printed yes, Relax. It was just one of those nights where you listen to John Peel and suddenly this, yeah. this track comes on. And you think, wow, that's just beautiful. So, um, but then, so, so around that same time, Nick Kent seems to be signing up. I don't know, starting at the NME, and you at this same time was starting with the Melody Maker. Is that correct? Have I got uh, that? Nick preceded me uh, by two years, I think. I think he started writing for um, the NME. Maybe late seventy two, early seventy three. Right. Uh, so, at least 15, 18 months be before me. Right. And um, uh, when I joined um, Melody Make, I really didn't know very much about Nick and Charlie Murray, who were already kind of legends at uh, NME. I'd been a, a dedicated Melody Maker reader. Um, since I was 13, I used to get the new Musical Express at the same time, but quickly decided that Melody Maker was much better. Yes. Uh, so I, right up until the point where I joined Melody Maker, um, that was my weekly music paper of choice. Um, but for a few months before that, I had been seeing uh, the NME uh, featuring a lot more of the bands that I liked and giving loads of space to them. So I picked up a couple of copies, um, and it, it seemed a lot livelier than, than, than Melody Maker was at that time. Melody Maker was you know, very, very dull, and it, 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 it just wasn't exciting anymore. Richard Williams had left. Um, Michael Watts was still a great feature writer when he could be bothered to write a feature, and his reviews were all really always really good. Uh, there was another writer, Jeff Brown, who wrote about soul music mostly, and he was very good. Uh, but he also was an early champion of pub rock, um, which became very important to me, uh, yes. mostly because of Dr. Feelgood. Um, so I wasn't really too aware of Nick and, and Charlie uh, when I actually joined. Um, I quickly became aware of them, but I uh, and I, I, I quickly became uh, friends with, with, with with, with Charles 
uh, he was uh, on the same, uh, my first foreign trip for Melody Maker was to, to cover um, uh, a Frank Zappa concert in uh, Paris and he was on the same trip and, and you know, we, we became friends over that. And I used to see him a lot uh, uh, covering the same sort of bands. Uh, we'd go on trips together to Randy Newman, Alex Hardy. And he, I've got to say, he was just really beautifully encouraging at the time when I was just starting out. Uh, and it, it, he did act the journalistic superstar, I must admit, but he kind of earned his status. And, you know, he was just really good to get on with and uh, hugely opinionated, which I, which I loved. Um, and also, uh, there was another enemy writer who was mutually encouraging. Uh, that was Roy Carr, oh, um, yes. who'd been on he would been on the paper for even longer than uh, Charlie by that time. Uh, but Nick Kent, I didn't uh, didn't know at all. Didn't get to to, to really talk to him until um, about 19, 1985, By which time I was uh, editor of Melody Maker, and Nick had had his final falling out with NME. Um, the editors who'd sort of previously protected him and indulged his late copy and general sloppiness, which was increasingly due to his drug problems. Um, they'd all left. There, were, there was a new editor there that didn't re really respect anything that Nick had done previously. And so Nick was very unhappy and eventually left. And he called me at Melody Maker and asked if there was any, uh, anything he, he could write for us. So I said, you know, yeah, let, let's have a meeting. So I went to meet him one night um, at, at a pub near the uh, British Museum uh, and we had a chat. He wasn't in very good shape. Um, but the next week he delivered uh, his handwritten review of Elvis Costello's King of America. And it was it was good. It was well worth printing. Yes. Uh, the next the next week he did the singles column and his copy came in on time. It was written on myriad scraps of paper. It seemed every single he reviewed had been written on a different scrap of paper and he had them all in a big carrier bag, which he just tipped on my desk. So that I then had to type up his copy for it. Um, the next week he came in to pick up some more albums to review, said he was off to meet up with Iggy Pop and I've never seen him since. <laughs> excellent there you go that's um so there's like two things with that which is quite interesting because I know when I think I, it was either when I didn't interview Nick or I heard him say it but when he started the uh, writing for the NME he said that the other writers there were still waiting for the Beatles to reform and he was thinking no granddad they've gone there's a new scene in town and and obviously on that occasion he was completely right did, so there was that. And also what was what was quite interesting was, and again, you know, from memory from talking to Nick, was that, you know, you have your zeitgeist moment and you're right there and you've seen that band the first time and they kind of rise. And then that next wave of 16, 18 year olds come along and then new wave of bands. And sometimes, you know, it's hard to keep that edge, isn't it? It's a bit like, I don't know, John Peel managed to do it. And I remember John Walters, the producer, saying, you know, when John reached puberty, we were all in trouble. And he had that kind of excitement. And I noticed the work of, say, Mick Rock, you know, it was brilliant. And then you think, God, oh, he doesn't really do much in the 80s. You're not there 
really at that kind of point someone you know kind of photographing some of those bands like the Smiths or I don't know just yeah. as an example but you were right there with Bowie, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop but you yeah. couldn't do it so yes <laughs> that's a bit double-edged uh, double but yeah so did you also have that thing that when you started you realized there was a new scene happening and actually what had happened only three years before was kind of over when I joined Melody Maker it was synonymous with prog rock I mean all the coverage was uh you know Genesis, Supertramp, Pink Floyd, uh yes, Barclay Jeff James Rotals, Harvest, oh, Barclay James Harvest thank you for reminding me um and then there would be you know Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple and you know the hard rock prog rock interface behind that was an obsession with the Beatles. Ray Coleman, the editor, um, was just besotted with the Beatles. You know, he lived daily in the single hope that they would reform. Um, we had endless Beatles to reform rumour covers. Ray would only have to hear a whisper to put the Beatles on the cover with a big question mark. Finally, question mark, are they getting back together? It seemed like almost every other week. I mean, it used to drive me up the fucking wall. I was, I just could not stand it. And at the same time, I remember one of the very first editorial meetings that I went to, um, they were discussing forthcoming features. Uh, and Chris Welch, who was the features editor, said uh, they been offered an exclusive interview with the Rolling Stones for a, in a couple of months' time around the release of It's Only Rock and Roll. I thought, blimey, I, I didn't think I'd get a chance to do it, uh, but I thought somebody's going to leap at it. And they turned it down because Mick Watts, the assistant editor, said nobody was interested anymore in the Rolling Stones. The moment had passed. They'd only released Exile on Main Street, like, you know, 14 months before, you know. <laughs> Uh, so this was a terrible, and this is basically the, the underlying reason that uh, Melody Maker was so slow to react to punk uh, at a cost to its circulation and kind of reputation. Um, it had this really patrician attitude um, that uh, punk wouldn't last. It would be over in, in a weeks, maybe months, you know, if, if with a if some of the bands were lucky enough to, to retain uh, the public's attention that long. I mean, it was really just wishful thinking, basically. Yes. Uh, but they, re they resisted covering punk for, for, for much, much too long. Yes. And how did you and how did it sort of pan out for you in the 70s then working with Melody Maker? Did you see that change and that sort of movement with? with, well, with... well, I'd been clamoring for change almost since the moment I got there, uh, but I wasn't sure what that change would uh, would look like or feel like. Um, in 1975, I think, uh, I wrote a piece that was headlined Rocking the Boat. And basically it said there should be enforced in the uh, in, enforced uh, euthanasia for all prog rock bands, heavy rock bands, and you know, like you know, people uh, that I didn't like um, that were clogging up the arteries of you know the current music scene. 
I, I, you know, I said, you know, we should be celebrating, you know, the Stooges and the Velvet Underground more than we should be celebrating, you know, you know Genesis or Bodley James Harvest or any of those people I've just been mentioning. <laughs> um, what I thought would be a, 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 a new musical scene uh, might coalesce around people like Brian Eno and uh, Robert Fripp and uh, Robert Wyatt uh, and bands like Slap Happy, say. Yes. Um, uh, Dagma Krauss and uh, Anthony Moore. Um, I thought it might come from that area, kind of a, a more left field, you know, kind of almost like an art school background. Uh, I, I didn't know quite what that would shape. Maybe Bowie was was going in that direction with his collaborations with Eno, because um, that was the first, you know, satisfying music I'd heard in, in a while, you know, when Low came. I, young Americans I, I, I love, but. Uh, when station to station, then followed by low, Bowie seemed to be at the centre of what was might be going to happen next. Yes, and 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 luckily, because you know, Charles Shah Murray wrote that piece on low, didn't he? Which he's probably having to, um, yeah, recover from ever since, really, hasn't he? Where he completely pans it and thinks, yeah, you know. I, yeah. If that was happening to a lot of records at the time, it must be said. I re I remember um, both. Melody Maker and uh, NME really slagged off Neil Young's On the Beach, which I just couldn't believe what, what the both papers were. And that actually inspired one of the best uh, pieces of music journalism of 74, 75, that period. Uh, Ian MacDonald on um, NME, uh, later the author of Revolution in the Head on the Beautiful, yes. uh, read the two reviews. And it's it stunned him that uh, you know somebody like a, somebody who was a recognised superstar at that time had provoked such a hostile reaction, and he wasn't a Neil Young fan, but he listened to the record, and he got it, and he wrote a, an, an epic piece the very following week. So the NME uh, followed up a, a, a big lead review on the album that said he was you know like one of the worst things that you know anybody had ever recorded, to Ian McDonald saying it was an absolute masterpiece, which, you know, I think, you know, there were some of us who agreed with it. Yes, but absolutely. It, it's, easy, it's easy to get something, you know, totally wrong, I would Absol say, in Charlie's defence. Yes, that, yes, absolutely. And it was probably a bit more. Yeah, so did you, as you were sort of developing a writer and as the decades were going, did you start to find your style and your voice a lot more and get more confidence, confident with your opinion or your ability to review? Well, I the the opinions were always there, <laughs> if uh, if not always eloquently expressed. Um, so so that never really changed. What 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 did change, obviously, was uh, hopefully the, the quality of the writing. Uh, when I joined Melody Maker, as I said, I've, I've never you know written a, a feature or a review. Uh, I wasn't one of those you know, teenage uh, music fans who kept you know notebooks and I, you know I would annotate what I'd been listening to, you know, kind of make notes on the Velvet Underground album or Grigri or songs of Leonard Cohen. I just listened to the records and yes. that, was, that was it. Um, so I was happy to, you know, and, and Melody made it, you know, they didn't send you on a course to, in, in how to write a feature. You know, Chris Welch would give you a kind of, a, you know, brief pep talk. Um, and you, you you were just sent off. You know, the first week I was there, we were at an editorial meeting on the Tuesday and they were going through the features list and so it turned out that uh, 
um, somebody needed to write a feature on your eye heat. And they said, you do it. You know, prog rock, I hate that. Never heard a, a whole album by your eye heat. So I had to go around the record company, take my back catalogue home, listen to it all over the next couple of days, then do the interview with Ken Hensley, the keyboard player, uh, write that up, and he was in the paper the next week. Yes. And you know, you... So, you know, that's what you, you, I just learned by, by writing, basically. No. Because there was a bit of a fashion, isn't there? You know, as the eighties appeared, we'd sort of write in these very incomprehensible kind of introductions that often uh, you have no idea what the writer's on about before you. But you want to sort of get to the bit where they're telling you, is it actually very good, or you know, in some insight into the to the band or the artist. But sometimes there was a fashion, wasn't there, which is kind of like, okay, I'll just skip that, skip that. Oh, I'll start at the end and see if there's a bit which I can. Did you ever? You know that that kind of fashion. Did you have moments where you, when you look back at some of your writing, or did that did that ever appeal to you? That form of writing. Uh, I I try to avoid that that kind of overtly analytical approach. I don't think I was very good at it. I was much better when I was being more straightforward and entertaining and, and getting to the point. Uh, I, re- I I did write a lot of reviews, which in retrospect were incredibly windy. Uh, and could, you know, started off very slowly and discursively, uh, and so probably very guilty of the, you know delaying you know an initial comment about the album that I'm supposed to be reviewing until you know maybe four or five hundred six hundred words into the review, uh, but that was pointed out to me very quickly, uh, so that didn't become a habit fortunately, and uh, uh, you know it can work. In a, in a very lengthy review, but we're talking more of an essay than, than an actual review of an album that's yes. coming out that a fan just wants to know, is it, if it, is it any good? Is it going to be worth me going out to the shop tomorrow and buying it? Um, so that's what people really want from a, a review. Um, is it, it's, it, Just let them know if it's good or bad. Yes, uh, absolutely. But... They, 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 but, but uh, as music journalism evolved through the, the period you're talking through in, into the 80s, uh, there were a lot of writers that became incredibly uh, effusively convoluted. Uh, yeah, well, the enemy. Overly the... complicated, uh, unnecessarily so. Uh, it, 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 it was a kind of obsessive erudition, um, but that took things. It, it, into the obscure rather than in illuminating what they were writing about. I wasn't a fan of all that kind of Paul Morley writing, Ian Penman, who is a fine writer, uh, yes. latterly. You know, some of his pieces for the, these are the TLS have been brilliant. So just, so as the, I mean, the, I'm kind of curious about it, but I'll just, so as the 80s progressed, you know, we had, um, this is simplistic, you know, the punk, post-punk, then kind of 83 to 87 was the years of the Smiths, you know, which I think is quite an amazing moment. And then I'm a very indie kid, aren't I? And then XDC comes along, there's the dance scene, there's grunge scene, there's shoegazing. How do you, as a, as a sort of writer, keep your enthusiasm? Because as I mentioned, Nick, Kent earlier you know by then he seemed to not really be on it for various reasons but also he sounded emotionally he wasn't his heart just wasn't in it anymore 
and he didn't really care, which is fair enough. You know, I probably feel like that about a lot of new bands now. So how do you keep that excitement and, and say, yes, I'm going to be really excited about the Wolfhounds or the June Brides or anything like that? I didn't have to be a fan of the music that we put on the cover at Melody Maker. Uh, if somebody else on the staff could make a good case for putting a band on the cover, then we'd go with it if there was enough support for it. Uh, it wasn't, you know, a democracy. Uh, I had the final decision. You know, it, it it wasn't a debating society up to a point. Uh, yeah. But I was always interested in, in in the views of other people. I mean, the, that period you're talking about, you did miss out uh, the new romantics and synth pop. Yes, um, I did. <laughs> uh, I, 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 it, I don't mention it because it's an era that I was particularly fond of. Uh, but but that was an interesting thing for the, the music papers to have to deal with. Uh, because it was... Uh, um, those bands that you know whammy culture club um were, were selling you know spend out but some tons of records uh the natural inclination was to, to whack them on the cover uh but they, they never really had much traction with um uh melody maker readers and our circulation seemed to be suffering because of the editor's uh inability to say no let's put you know, music we like on the cover. Uh, and I remember talking about the Smiths. Um, he went on holiday and I was in charge. And he said, you know, the first cover you do next week, it's got to be Kajagoogoo. Um, and after that, see if you can get something else on Wham, even if it's Andrew Ridgely, that'll do. Just so that it's Kajagoogoo Wham. And I went, yeah, sure, uh, absolutely. I put the Smiths on the cover instead of Kajagogo, and everybody went mad. What? No, the publisher said, "What have you done? What have you done?" I said, "You know, we couldn't do Kajagogo. Nobody's really interested." It was just before they split. In fact, um, or Le Mans left. Um, it, there was outcry over it. When the editor got back, he went nuts. Until the circulation figures came in. And that Smith's cover had been our largest selling issue for, I think, two and a half, three years. Yes. Uh, and that was the direction. The The editor in question uh, um, left in early 1984, and that's when I, I, I became editor. And it was, you know, bands like the Smiths, Orange Juice, uh, that we, we, we started covering. Uh, R.E.M., had, come into view by then as well. And for me personally, they were like being thrown uh, a life belt. You know, I was drowning. There wasn't a lot of music that I liked through that, that early uh, 90s period. Elvis was still making decent records around then. Um, I a few other people. Uh, but I was listening mostly to the country music. I listened to, uh, so really were you getting into that? New, were you getting into that uh, new Paisley scene with Green on Red? And, you know, you mentioned R.E.M., obviously. Yeah, the, the first time we put R.E.M. on the cover, um, I think it wasn't long after I became editor, uh, we used them uh, basically as a, a, a flagship band uh, uh, for a, a new wave of American music. And we ran a four-part series called State of the Union, the New American Rock. And we had a uh, we had, uh, it was an image of Peter Buck in the end that we went for. Uh, doing his sort of, uh, you know, he, very early days, he used to do that Pete Townsend sort of 
arm windmill thing. Yes. Uh, with his shirt sleeves flying everywhere. Um, and that gave us uh, a, a real editorial focus. Uh, so we, we championed uh, Green on Red, as you mentioned, you know, True West, Los Lobos, um, uh, The Blasters, The Beat Farmers. Uh, the Blasters were another really important band for me. I managed to get them on the, the, the cover in uh, 1982, I think it was, when uh, their first album came out in the UK. Yes, absolutely. And then the other thing that we used to get very excited about as music fans, you know, getting the music papers, you know, there was the NME used to bring out the, the ones, you know, those cassettes that we loved. The the Melody Maker, oh, and, sing, and used to have seven-inch singles. But the Melody Maker also had the seven-inch singles as well, didn't they? Or were they 45s that would be sellotaped to the cover as well? So was that during your period that you started, you know, putting out the the records with the paper? That would have been a bit earlier. I think we had um, some promotional tie-in with uh, a beer manufacturer or something, maybe Heineken or somebody like that. Um, they sponsored, uh, it was a, a new band um, album uh, that was available uh, by mail order. Um, we used to have a, a, a page called Playback and readers in bands were in, uh, invited to send in demo tapes and we had to pick 12 of, of the best tracks uh right this, uh, i think it was a 10 inch album and six tracks but uh, this was a seven we, we, did, we did do a couple of uh singles but they were plexi discs i'll have to have a look i probably have them somewhere <laughs> but i just remember there was a sort of a bit of a goth scene wasn't there with melody maker from from my yes. Yes, I, we, we uh, Sisters of Mercy and the Mission, All About Eve. Um, who was the other band? Uh, oh, the, the Cult. The, the Cult, yeah. Yeah, they, they all sold really well for us. Chetty and Orphan. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Another name plucked out. Uh, but we had writers who treated those bands really, really well uh, with a degree of, of humour, I think. Um, we had uh, a pair of writers called the Stud Brothers, and they wrote one of the funniest ever Melody Maker cover stories. It was a Christmas cover story um, about an evening uh, with a mission. Uh, they end up in jail at the end of it. They, they, they'd have phoned me up from the police cells the next morning and bail them out. Oh, it was hilarious, absolutely hilarious. Excellent. There was a, a groundswell of um, editorial support for all those bands. I mean, I, I, I particularly, I didn't particularly like them, and you know, there were other people on the paper would roll their eyes, but you know, they sold issues for us. Yes, all and that's about what I'm to do. Uh, but to, to, to go back to your point about uh, uh, losing enthusiasm, there was never a period where I lost any enthusiasm. Uh, for the music that I liked. And there was always more of the music that I liked coming out. Uh, different bands, you know, being inspired by, you know, Neil Young, say, um, or Bowie, or Roxy. Um, there was always something happening. I, as I mentioned, you know, the Blasters, you know, they didn't make a big e impact here, but they might have. But I was glad that the Melody Maker supported them. Yes. Um, and then, as I say, when REM and all those that, that new wave of uh, um, American 
bands came out. I mean, that was just a, a, an amazing time. And that went into like people like American Music Club that we supported, then onto the Butthole Surfers. Um, so there was always something happening. And fortunately, we, we had the, a, such a good staff at that point. Uh, Chris Roberts, uh, Simon Reynolds, and um, uh, David Stubbs were right. our three staff writers. Uh, but then on the freelance side, we had people like John Wilde and Ian Gittings, uh, Caroline Sullivan. Uh, we had a good editorial team. So we covered a lot of ground because, you know, Chris Roberts and Simon Reynolds and David Stubbs had very disparate taste in music. But all three of them, you know, you just sent them off to do an interview or a feature. And all you had to do with their copy is just publish it. You know, you just didn't mess about with it. Make sure that it it looked good on the page and, and let it go. Yes. They, they, they were just incredible writers. And how did you cope with trying to keep that kind of balance with new things? Because I know the NME used to get very angsty in the 80s. I mean, most people did, but, you know, putting rap music in a rap artist, was that going to be another one of those 18-month fads and then that was going in? You know, I know, I know Chris Roberts was saying that I think they were one of the, when he worked with Sounds, they were one of the first papers to put someone like Public Enemy on the front cover of the Sounds. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but there was something about, you know, from an interview I heard him saying about rap artists. Did, did you have those kind of issues and, and some of those debates about whether that's going to be part of what Melody Maker is about and whether your readers are interested? It, it it became very central to what we were about and the readers loved it. Uh, th th there's always this kind of you know, myth that the, that the music weeklies never put black artists on the cover, which would suggest that we ignored rap completely, but neither Sans, NME or, or Melody Maker did. And we, we had Public Enemy on the cover, we had Ice-T, Ice Cube, we had a, a brilliant uh, Snoop cover, uh, a, 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 probably early 90s. It was just before he went on trial and our photographer, Tom Sheehan, who's a psychedelic cockney, somehow got on to Snoop's wavelength and convinced him to do a black power salute with handcuffs hanging from his wrist. And it was just a fabulous image. Uh, Melody Maker was the, uh, the first British music paper to put uh, NWA on the cover. Um, we did a lot of, uh, you know, Cameo were on the cover, I remember. Uh, we did a lot of rap covers. And yes. it, 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 with, with no blowback from, from readers, you know, that they were, they were really into it. Yes. So a couple of, about a week or so ago, I did an interview with a member of the band called the Bardos, who were sort of based in Norwich and Norfolk. And and he was talking, so this was the lead singer, Simon. And he said, yeah, the, from the, the Melody Maker said, look, this is what's going to happen. We're going to make you single of the week for one week, then single of the week the next time, and then single of the week on the third one. So that's the plan. And your career is going to go wonderfully. So, you know, sure enough, the first single comes out single of the week melody maker second time their next single comes out single of the week and then they they're supporting suede and they get absolutely blasted in the melody maker and they never recover you know they, they've their confidence is gone it doesn't happen and you know they make two albums and disappear so so with though you know that's that's kind of like wow that's amazing actually the power of the press at that stage so what what was the kind of the the general idea of these kind of decisions that were being made uh, what would make the best 
Uh, yeah, I mean, being told, you. oh, being told your next single will make it single oh, of the week. I, I mean, I'd never heard of the Bardo. I mean, that was never a conversation that we had at editorial level that we were going to make them serially singles of the week and then turn them into superstars. Yes, that, no, I just wondered because because that's you know. just, just just fanciful. <laughs> I, I, it might have been um, one of our writers who was a, a particular fan of the Borders was trying to impress them, or he was maybe trying to engineer it that he would do the singles the week that they had their new singles released. Um, I don't know, but certainly it. We we never had that kind of discussion. We never said, right, we're going to take this band, we're going to make them single of the week. Then we're going to feature them as a lead album review. Then we're going to do a, a page feature. Then we'll do a double page spread on them. Then we'll put them on the cover. It was much more instinctive than that. Right. I remember, you know, like when the first time we put Stone Roses on the cover, I'd seen them on Snub TV doing Elephant Stone and just thought it was fantastic. Uh, then I heard just, it was before the album came out, they were playing the ICA. So I went down to see that and uh, there was a, there was a, a tube strike, I, I think, that, that that night, and a lot of people hadn't turned up, so the audience was much smaller than anticipated. But they just blew me away so fiercely uh, that across the, the room, I, I saw their uh, PR, Philip Hall, I just walked straight across to him and said, what are they doing tomorrow or the, the rest of the week? He said, well, they're in town for a few days because they have another London show next week. And I said, if you can get us an interview, I'll put them on the cover of the next available issue. And I just went into the office the next day and announced that we were putting Stone Roses on the cover. There was a little head scratching, uh, but yes. we did it. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just kind of, I, I got this PDF of the kind of this this little bit. Well, I did the interview, and then but there was also a book that had come out about some of these bands that was titled Bigger Than the Beatles, and it and it does mention about the this kind of being made single of the week and then yep single of the week and then oh actually you supported suede and then you get absolutely hammered and, well, it, and... It, it probably wasn't um, that they that they supported sla uh, suede uh it was probably that um it was a different writer yes with a different opinion uh it, it, if the writer who had been it seems quite intimate with the bardos had reviewed that suede show they probably wouldn't have got a, re a bad review, but since it was somebody else, conspicuously wasn't a fan, uh, that's why they, they suddenly got a bad review. Uh, fans have to remember that the, you know, like the, the, ed the editorial staff at none of the, in the music weeklies all unanimously agreed on the merit of everybody that was featured. You know, we used to have really fierce arguments that, at Melody Maker about the merits of uh, what bands were, you know, we're going to put in the paper or why we weren't going to cover somebody. Um, but <laughs> the idea that, that that we kind of planned an ascent to stardom for any of these bands is <laughs> is really quite fanciful. <laughs> we we yes. weren't that organised. We weren't that capable. Yes, it was just sad. Yeah, so so look, then after your the old melody maker, uncut comes on. So what's the the idea of uncut, and and how did you manage to get that gig? Well, um, I became very disillusioned with um, melody maker's coverage uh, of Britpop, which was kind of imposed upon us by the publishers. Enemy um, was. I'd leapt on the Britpop bandwagon really early. 
uh, and was milking it for all it's worth. And their sales were, were, were improving because of their Britpop coverage. So the publisher said, this is what you should be doing as well. My instinctive feeling was that our readers didn't like Britpop. Uh, but after months, it seemed, of pestering, I said, OK, you know, we'll feature more Britpop. And it was a disaster. We lost so many readers. It was obvious, as I say in the new book, that uh, Melody Maker readers preferred us when we were covering butthole surfers to blur. Um, our sales just declined quite dramatically, very, very quickly. Um, our readers rejected it. And I, I, you know, we were doing endless covers on Oasis and blur and pulp, and you couldn't get them every week. So you started moving down the Britpop ladder to the point where you get to menswear and 60 foot dolls. And uh, I was beginning to despair of this. I mean, it was just, I mean, I really didn't like it. And um, in, what was it, 1996, I went to Nashville for a week. It, it was the, the week of the, the Euro finals in London. It had been a, a, you know, a summer oh, of yes. you know, foot, football and Britpop. What a horrible combination for me. Uh, so I went to Nashville to do a feature on a 13 piece country soul band called Lamb Chop, whose albums I just adored. Again, you know, as much as I didn't like what was happening in UK music and our commitment to covering it on Melody Maker, uh, there was a band, you know, that I, I could really attach myself to. And uh, Kurt Wagner, uh, uh, the leader of the band, uh, and I were talking one evening and uh, I just kind of admitted how unhappy I was at uh, Melody Maker. And uh, he said, you know, well, you know, what else would you like to do? And um, I started discussing a film magazine with him. And when I came back, the kind of idea had lodged a bit more in my mind. And at the time, there was a magazine called Vox. Yes. Uh, I love that. And um, they, they'd recently lost an editor. And uh, I was offered the editorship there. Uh, and this simultaneously coincided with uh, another initiative, public publishing initiative for Melody Maker, which was to make it a much, much younger title, uh, which again, I thought was a dreadful mistake. Um, but they wanted to go after the smash hits audience. But I knew that IPC, the publishers, wouldn't invest in the production values that smash hits enjoyed. You know, the, 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 the genuinely glossy paper, the full color uh, pictorial reproduction, the smart design. Uh, it, I, I just thought, you know, Melody Maker in, in that style would, would, would just, you know, lose it, its audience completely. Uh, so that further spurred me on to go into the uh, the, um, the publishers and suggesting uh, a film title. Uh, and incredibly, they indulged the idea. Uh, so I worked for about six months on that. And it was a trial because nobody on the publishing team knew anything about films or at least affected not to know anything. They'd, they'd be pretty condescending about a lot of it. Um, so I didn't feel there was much enthusiasm for the, 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 the title that I was working on, uh, which I'd by then uh, titled Uncut. 
Um, and we were just about to uh, going into the last week of work on the dummy issue that would have been printed up and sent out uh, for research to potential uh, readers and hopefully you know future purchasers of the magazine. And it was a Friday afternoon, and uh, Norman, the art editor that uh, that I'd been working with, uh, we were called up to see the uh, the publishers who told us that they just heard the two rival publishers were launching film titles that sounded suspiciously like Uncut and both would be on sale before Uncut, even if we'd, you know, passed the the, 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 the reader research stage. Mm. Uh, so Uncut as a film title was, you know, dead in the water at that point. Um, I went home that night and I, you know, I would, Norman and I would rather have eaten each other than go back to Melody Maker at that point. Um, so in the pub that night, I just drew up a new features plan. Uh, and I realized that however disillusioned I was with, you know, Britpop and what British music was at that time, I was still going to go home and, and play the Velvet Underground or play Van Morrison uh, or, you know, Dylan or the Stones. I was still listening to loads of music and really enjoying it. And I thought, well, we're right about that. Uh, I realized it was going to take us into Mojo territory, but I thought maybe we could start um, kind of musical retrospection uh, around punk rather than 67 yes. and the Summer of Love, move it on a bit. Um, that didn't quite pan out. Uh, but anyway, it suddenly became a music and movie magazine. And I went in on the Monday morning, explained it to Norman, who got it immediately and started uh, on new pages. And we stripped out, um, we, we, we rescued anything uh, that we could from the film title and used that as the, uh, the, the, as the film coverage, because the idea was to be, you know, 50-50 music and movies. And I just downloaded from my own computer old features that I'd written, uh, some features that other people had written that I had on my screen because I'd been editing. And we used that as all live copy. And over the next four days, uh, we knocked out 148 pages. And uh, Alan Lewis, who was the, um, the publishing uh, director that we'd been working with uh, up to that point, um, came back from holidays, came down, we showed him the pages, and you could see the light bulb going on, going off above his head. He rushed off to see the Group MD, and he came down about 20 minutes later, carrying all these sheaves of paper that uh, we printed out for him. And he said, "You know, we're definitely going to print this. You know, we'll definitely, you know, finish uh, a 168-page dummy by the end of next week. We'll send it off, get it printed, get it straight out uh, for research, and uh, which is what they did. 200 readers were given copies of the dummy issue." Uh, they uh, had it for, I think, 10 days. Then the researchers went back and asked them one question. If this was on sale, would you buy it? And fortunately, uh, enough of them did for IPC to, to, to green light uncut. Uh, and um, we then had six weeks to put the first issue together and for publication as in uh, May 1977. Yes. God, new labour. That was an amazing time, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. We, the first issue was actually published on the same day that uh, Tony Blair marched into number 10. 
It's uh, yes, and it captured a moment, and and it's been phenomenal success, hasn't it? I mean, it's. Have you been interested to see which magazines lasted and which ones sort of just didn't? And the fact that those really specialist ones now, like I don't know, Re- Record Collector and and various other ones that I'm keen on, which I can't remember the title, but you know they're very they what, really Shindig people rock. Yes, those yeah, ones. Yeah. That's yeah, that amazing. You know, just brilliant. Anything like an uh, eight-page, ten-page article on the most obscure band <laughs> is, is just brilliant, isn't it? Really, yeah. and and actually, the one thing I've noticed with Record Collector, they've got some really good writers like Luke Haynes and also um, another guy who writes a page, which is just always a delight. Um, does, does David Quantic still write? Yes, that? that's the one. Yes. Yeah. So there are there are brilliant writers, and there are people that you do want to um, read and find. Well, even... well, that's, that's what I like about you know, Paul Lester was the original music editor on Uncut, uh, and then he became the assistant editor before he uh, resigned to go freelance. Uh, but he's reassembled a lot of old um melody maker and enemy writers much as we did on uncut when we first started uh we got uh, david stubbs and chris roberts and uh simon reynolds even uh, to, to contribute to us as well as some uh enemy writers like gavin martin yes well it's Harry yeah Quantum. and i guess now that they're in that period of life where they've got a i don't know a bit more time and they can write those long articles and about the most obscure band we love it don't we so um so look, coming back then to your latest book and your previous one. So then what, this was 2017, your first one, I Can't Stand Up Was Falling Down, and then part two as well. So did this was this kind of one of those things that we all have experienced now about archiving? Did you, what was the kind of reason for bringing the books out? Well, um, the first book happened completely by accident. Uh, it um from the from the from from the start of uh, uh, I'd written a, a feature called "Stop Me If You've Heard One This, this One Before," uh, which revisited a lot of the stories that I was involved with uh, in my kind of melody maker heyday uh, between '74 and '84 when I became editor and I was travelling a lot, always on the road with bands, doing loads of interviews, meeting you know some astonishing people, um, and I, I wrote them up anecdotally. Uh, so broke down the you know original you know six thousand word features to you know fifteen hundred words, um, and um, I met a guy at a gig uh, who turned out to be the um, marketing UK marketing director of Bloomsbury Books, and he recognised me from my mugshot in Uncut, and he'd been an old uh, Melody Maker reader, and he wondered why uh, since I'd uh, retired I hadn't written a book or put a book out. And you know, I said, I'm really not interested in writing any kind of memoir, and I don't want to write uh, a biography of somebody the a publisher thinks is a rock icon. Mm. Uh, I, it, it, you know, I'm just not interested in that. And he said, no, no, I, I was thinking, he, he was thinking of a, a collection of the Stopney stories. Um, he said, yeah, I'm, he was sure Bloomsbury would be interested. And uh, he, he gave me his card. And after a couple of days, I, I got in touch and said, were you serious? Or, you know, I thought you might have had a few drinks and got a bit carried away. Uh, and he said, no, I've already discussed it with our commissioning editor. Uh, uh, and she's uh, asked you to send her, uh, you know, maybe six stories as a sample of the, the writing style and the content, which I did. She phoned me back 
uh, almost immediately on receipt. He said, I've just read through the stories. I don't know anybody of, the, of these artists that you're writing about. Uh, but, you know, I really do love them. I love the style. They're, they're very funny. They're very informative. Um, I'm going to take uh, one of them into uh, uh, an international marketing meeting on Friday, uh, Friday morning. And uh, that's the, the, the meeting that will decide what's going to be on our publishing schedule for next year. Uh, and I'm going to take this story about somebody you've met called Lou Reed, um, who, who invites you on the road with him. Uh, after you've done an interview and you have this wild week in Sweden with him. I said, yeah, take and sit and see what they make of that. Uh, and she called me as soon as she came out of the meeting and she passed it around. Everybody had read it. And she said there wasn't a person in the room who knew Lou Reed was or, or heard of the Velvet Underground. But they all liked the, the writing enough to uh, to say, yeah, we want more of this. We, you know, we should put a book of this stuff out. Um, so it wasn't like it's some great imperative I had about archiving my past features it was just in response to the interest from bloomsbury yes. uh, so um that that book went ahead i mean i, I was able to deliver the copy very quickly because uh, in most instances i you know i just went through the the original pieces i wrote and uh, tidied them up updated them um just in, in, you know just give gave them a you know a, a new sheen a new butt uh, and there, there were maybe about a third of the book I, 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 I was, was new writing that went into it. Uh, so it didn't take me long to put together it. And the book was out, I think, with about nine months of me getting the, uh, the original contract. They moved very, very quickly on it. Yes. And how did you feel revisiting, you know, articles that you wrote probably nearly 45 years ago when, when this came out? Did it Did it feel kind of interesting or embarrassing or did you think mm, I better oh, just there, there, were, there, there were occasional features that would just make a you know wince at the, you know, the poor choice of language poor construction just you know just sloppy writing uh sometimes just purely due to uh uh the, the, the speedy turnaround needed for the copy in those days but I I have to say with with some profound relief that there were only three or four that that, that they were like that um, most of the stories that lived with me for so long, I mean, you know, they would be told and retold around pub tables, yes, um, endlessly. Um, so they, they were they, they were quite well honed by the time I started writing them them up for Uncut. And in fact, it was um, the, the the publishing director I mentioned earlier, Alan Lewis, uh, who was writing quite high in IPC at that time because uh, he'd been very very central. Uh, to the development and publishing of Loaded, which was a huge success. Uh, so, you know, Alan was you know, held in some esteem um, and, and a brilliant bloke to work with. Uh, and we were discussing, um, as we neared uh, publication of the first issue of Uncut, the thorny subject of a, an editor's letter. And he knew that I really didn't want to write one because I always thought they were quite superfluous. And he said, well, look, instead of writing a normal editor's letter, why don't you work out one of these anecdotes that, you know, you, you can, you know, you're, you're regaling us nightly in the pub after we finish work with stories about, you know, being on tour with The Clash or The Sex Pistols or R.E.M. or Lou Reed or interviewing Leonard Cohen and Van Morrison, Neil Young. He said, You've got, you know, like loads and loads of stories. Just write them up as, you know, kind of anecdotes. Uh, so that was the the the, the sort of uh, the, the Stopney columns that eventually became 
um, pretty much the content of um, Can't Stand Up for Falling Down. Yes. Did you did you find yourself? Do you did you still have the tapes, recordings that you had of these? You know, a lot of your interviews, or did they just get lost? Uh, I had in the attic somewhere, um, like a big trunk, which has got tapes in, but I haven't looked at them or looked in that trunk for you know over thirty years. What I did have uh, was the pieces that I originally wrote for Melody Maker. And, you know, a cover story in those days would be could be up to 6,000 words. Uh, the, the, uh, the pages were so big and the type was so small. Um, I never realized how long some of those features were until we started Uncut and thought it might be uh, <coughs> nice to uh, revisit some of the, you know, sort of classic pieces uh, uh, from, the, from the NME and Melody Maker archives. And one of the first ones we we did uh, was a cover cover story I wrote in 1979 on the uh, the Clash's first American tour, and we 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 had it all typed out and put on disc, and we ran it into the pages of Uncut, and it ran for 20 solid pages of <laughs> unbroken text. I mean, it was so long, even by the standard of cover stories that we were running at the time. Yes, that was probably going to be a bit excessive. Did you find your your interviewing style or technique? Did you notice that had changed at all, or were you had that sort of? Did you sort of think actually I can't? I'm too close to it. I can't tell if if it's changed. If I've got better, is it? it... My my te- my technique as such was always very straightforward. Turn up prepared and ask questions and keep asking questions until you get answers. To the questions and at the same time listen and don't let um, an artist just answer your question and then move on to the next question if there's something he said in his reply that really demands following up in some way so be alert to the possibilities of you know finding your next question in the reply you're being given yes but it, it was as simple as that you know i i it, if I, if I, you know, was given enough notice of an interview, I would sit down and do as much research as I could, given the limitations of research possibilities in those days. Without the internet, you couldn't Google somebody and find their entire history online. Um, there was a Melody Maker archive, but mostly it was uh, Melody Maker features with a few clippings from, you know, some jazz magazines or other musical periodicals that had caught somebody's eye and they thought, you know, that's worth filing. Uh, but as much as possible, I would, you know, sit down and write out or type out a list of questions. So I, I would be really prepared and I would just go in and ask them. Yes, it's interesting because because I, I was reading your one with um, Reckless Eric for various reasons. And that and that's quite an awkward interview, isn't it? That's kind of not the easiest interview to navigate. And it just made me smile because I did an interview with him a couple of nights ago and it was like, two hours and he's obviously a very different person than he was in 1977 where he was still a one you know just had one song really hadn't he so um well yes you know w- when I met him um whole wide world had just come out and you know as far as I was concerned it was another great single from Steph and you know we had to do this guy um but yes he'd never been interviewed before and uh, Eric as you know is he, he, he's, he's he's very eccentric um 
and he, he was he was quite nervous about the, the whole prospect of, of doing an interview. But you know, after we had a few drinks, um, it, it 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 calmed down a bit. Yes, and and people like John Anderson was that an interesting experience? Obviously, you know, you're you're sort of not such a love of yes, and at this stage, it was quite interesting because the the yes period was about to change quite radically with the world of buggles, really. So did yeah. you know what was that kind of experience like with with you know this musical giant in the 70s um it was fascinating i as much as i disliked what yes uh became um you know when rick wakeman joined you know and you know they went into the concept albums and the extended musical opuses uh in the very early i saw them in 1968 uh, at a small club in south wales um in in a town even smaller than Port Talbot called Bridgend they had a, a a place called the Key Club tiny it, was, it, it wasn't much bigger than the average uh, kind of minicab office uh, but they used to have brilliant groups on there anybody who was signed to Harvest seemed to play there so we regularly saw Roy Harper, Kevin Ayers, uh, Third Ear Band, Edgar Broughton, Pete Brownsby Blockdo, um, the Nice played there, the Pink Floyd played there just after David Gilmour joined um, and yes, played there, and they were blindingly good uh, in their original lineup. Uh, but I saw them a couple of years later uh, in Leeds, and it was already starting to go to hell. Had they got uh, Alan know. White, or was it Bill? Uh, um, Bill Bruford was still in the group they, uh, the first few times I saw them. I think the last time I saw them, uh, Alan White was on drums, right. uh, Wakeman was on keyboards. Uh, and um, Steve Howe was on guitar. When I originally saw them, Tony Kay was on organ, and Michael Pete Banks was uh, on guitar. He was a really good guitar player, too, really fierce. Yes. Uh, but I hadn't, I hadn't liked how precious they'd become. You know, I, you know, for me, all that kind of mysticism uh, and symbolism was, is utterly risable. Um, yes. But anyway, we Melody Maker was offered um, the interview with John Anderson, and I... I think I volunteered to do it because I thought I could, you know, possibly bring something different to it. Uh, you know, Chris Welch was long gone by then, and he'd been the, you know, the chief spokesman for for prog rock and, you know, a, an early champion of Yes, good friend of John Anderson's. You know, if he'd been around, he probably he might have ended up doing the interview. It would have been another kind of fairly sycophantic piece. Yes. I, I thought it might be quite lively anyway. Uh, so I was flown out to the south of France to, to spend the evening or the day and evening uh, um, with, with Anderson at the, the villa that he'd rented for the summer. Uh, in, in many ways, he was utterly, utterly risable, as I say. Uh, but he was very passionate about uh, what he believed in. Um, I, and I, I, I didn't dislike him at all. I, you know, he, he seemed you know, a really kind of good bloke. You know, very dedicated to what he was doing, but you know, a preening narcissist uh, and somebody who who was just utterly convinced of his own godlike genius, a bit like Sting. Uh, I mean, it, you know, everything revolved around him. You know, he he just couldn't understand why Yes had finally rebelled against his, you know, absolute tyranny over the group. Yes, um, at the recording sessions in Paris, where it all came to a head. Uh, he turned up with two very long uh, songs that he wanted them to do. Apparently, one of them was about a dentist, and the other one was uh, 
a rewritten version of um, Randy Newman's sort of cowboy ballad, uh, Rider on the Range. And I, you know, I said, you rewrote Randy Newman's lyrics. I said, you know, what, you know, did you think you could improve on a Randy Newman lyric? And he said, oh, it wasn't to improve upon it. Um, I'd just written the song from a different perspective. I said, what was the different perspective? And he said, the horse. So he'd written, <laughs> he'd rewritten the song from the perspective the perspective of the horse, and then wondered why the rest of the band <laughs> really weren't interested and had given him very short thread. Yes. And, well, it... and that was the start of the, the, the further arguments that led to his uh, um, his departure from the band. His demise. Yeah, no, it's kind of interesting because there was obviously that point where you know, he was probably going to have an existential crisis in the 80s when he was completely irrelevant. Uh -huh. But um, but one thing I did notice without and <laughs> wanting to sound too irritating, you don't interview. There are not a lot of women that feature in these books, are there? And you didn't re review a lot of um, women singer songwriters or artists or bands. Is there? Um, did you notice that yourself when you were looking? Oh, I, at... I, it was terribly frustrating. I mean, I would love to have uh, interviewed Laura Nero. I mean, she was. You know, New York Tenderbury is one of my, you know, top five favourite albums. Uh, <coughs> unfortunately, she'd gone into a period of retirement. One of yes. the very first things I wrote for Melody Maker, in fact, was about New York Tenderbury. They had a page feature called Fanzine, where writers could um, uh, write about uh, some of their favourite records that they, they thought had been overlooked. So I did that, and the next week I did um, um, Flying Burrito Brothers, uh, followed by... Um, uh, a, a piece on Grant Parsons. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would love to have done Joni Mitchell. Uh, I would, you know, if she'd been around and uh, Judy Sell, I used to love. Yes. I, I would, you know, Rita Franklin. I, mean, I, I would have done Rita Franklin. Uh, but I just did the, the, the groups that I was assigned to, to do. Uh, and there weren't that many, you know, apart from Chrissy Hine, Patty Smith, Susie Quattro, uh, who I did a short piece. Uh, on for the front section of uh, an, an issue. I mean, there weren't many others. Um, I mean, I suppose there was Downer Gillespie, but nobody was interested in, in her at that point, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I suppose, uh, yes. Yeah, no, uh, I just, uh, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be <laughs> irritated. It's, was... a question, it's a question that, that, that's often asked. Um, but often I didn't have a choice in who I was doing. I yes. was a staff writer, uh, and, you know, I was given, you know, weekly assignments, you know, Obviously, when when people of the paper realised that I, you know, had, had good relations, you know, with with nearly anybody that was on step, I wrote a lot about them. And you know, then it was Squeeze, it was XDC uh, magazine. Um, you know, if there had been, you know, any you know, no, bands, I would I would have done them. What what about Larry Wallace? Was he ever? Somebody who came on your, you know, not radar because obviously, but did you did you ever do a feature on Larry? I didn't do a feature on it, but he fe featured quite prominently in the cover story I wrote on the first Stiff tour because uh, he was on on that, uh, and, and he what a lovely guy. I mean, he was just hilarious. He was uh, one of the um, uh, on the tour. There was a group of um, group of it, 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 it became known as the Twenty Four Hour Club, basically. And it was Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds, Pete Thomas from the attractions, uh, 
and Larry Wallace were, were, were the, 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 the main gang. I used to join in uh, when I was on tour, in, you know, obviously in uh, pursuit of, you know, sort of journalistic research. And I would, you know, stay up all night with them and yes. take drugs and, 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 and get drunk with them. Uh, but I remember there's, um, there's a song on Nick Lowe's first solo album, Jesus is Cool. Uh, and Larry inspired the title of it. Um, I was sitting with Nick on the, on, on the couch uh, uh, in Glasgow after a particularly long night, and we were just going off to the sound check at the Apollo. Uh, and Nick was feeling a bit 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 weak. Uh, and Larry Wallace came on, looking like death, absolute death. He was white faced. We we had been up all night caning it. And uh, Nick said, Larry. Old chap, he said, "How are you doing?" And Larry said, "I feel like I've been nutted by reality," and I could <laughs> see this little light in Nick's eyes, and that became a song. It became the title of the song on the, on the album. Yes, absolutely. Because you do mention Lemmy, don't you, in your first book as well, which is uh, another chapter. Which is <laughs> so the Lemmy period as well, which was quite an epic, really, isn't it? So, how did you not sort of find yourself being totally destroyed with such a a monstrous group of people. Um, luck, basically. Nothing more complicated than that. Uh, I'd like to say that, you know, I had control of my drug taking, my drinking, whatever, uh, but I didn't. Uh, I mean, it, it, in other circumstances, it could have gone really badly. Uh, I mean, good friends of mine, you know, died um, because of drugs. You know, Pete Ponton and uh, Jimmy Hunnam and Scott from The Pretenders. I mean, I, I was really close to those two guys and that was devastating. Um, you saw the damage that it was doing to some people, you know, like Nick Kent's uh, heroin habit got, you know, pretty much out of hand and led to the uh, deterioration in his writing and his reliability. Uh, Charlie took uh, an awful lot of speed uh, and started to write like a speed freak, which is always a mistake. I never wrote, you know, when I, I never thought that drugs or drink made me a better writer. Uh, the drugs I took mainly to, to stay up because I didn't want to miss anything and drinking, I just enjoyed. Um, but I never bought into the, the idea of, uh, you know, that Nick Kent used to bang on about, you know, kind of, you know, the, all that elegantly wasted, you know, you know death wish, Kind of you know premature death legend. Yes. I you know I can see the charisma of a premature death. You know it, you know when it comes to, to somebody like Grand Parsons, but I'd rather have Grand Parsons alive and making records than you know burning in the in the Mojave Desert. Uh, yes. However, however much of a legend it made him. Did you ever feel? Did you ever kind of struggle to work out why Lester Bangs was always regarded as such a great writer? Um, I haven't struggled because I've never read any Lester Bangs. Right. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd never heard of Lester Bangs when I joined Melody. I've got somewhere, um, was it uh, you know, the um, the anthology? Yes. Uh, but I think I've skimmed through it a couple of times and in the pages and the passages I've read all seemed a bit shouty and I keep putting it back. I mean, I, I sh should just, out of, you know, kind of curiosity, uh, have a closer look at it. I mean, I, I, everybody else you know, it seems to adore him. Uh, but I I know absolutely nothing about him except for yes. absolutely famous. 
I, I know I know his story more than his writing. Yeah, yes, I I couldn't I never got the appeal. Did you ever? Because you probably would not quite. Yeah, it started quite enough. Did Nick Drake was he one of those people you wished you'd re- interviewed, but you just missed the chance? Was, I was you know, I've never a big Nick Drake fan, right? Uh, so I, I, I didn't feel uh, the regret I, I felt about uh, the fact that I'd never get a chance to interview Grant Parsons, say, um, who was much more important to me than, than Nick Drake was. Yes, no, it's just kind of because I've noticed the people you. You, you know, you've got, you seem to resonate with quite strongly. And I thought, I wonder if Nick Drake was one of those people Cur- as well. Curiously not. It I mean, I don't was. dislike the records in any way, but, it, you know, they, they, they never meant as much to me as they did to a, a lot of my friends. Yes. And which one, And was there any particular person that you met that um, was very disappointing in the end? You thought, blimey, that wasn't, that wasn't very good. I'm not sure about the records now. No. No, there was nobody. Uh, it, it wasn't a case of, you know, never meet your heroes because uh, you'll be disappointed by them. Uh, um, in every way, I think everybody uh, that I met, um, even if I didn't like them, um, it, it, it didn't really you know, kind, of, kind of matter to me uh, that they, they were there to, to, to be written about. Mm. Uh, but nobody, there was nobody that I felt kind of a you know a crushing disappointment. Some people um, were, to use the word again, more risable, uh, or had some kind of levels of uh, absurdity attached to them, like you know Brian Ferry, for instance. Uh, but it, 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 how, however, my interviews with people went, and you know, it, I did one with Gordon Lightfoot, which nearly ended up with him punching me in the face. Um, Tony Iommi actually did punch me in the face after something I wrote about Black Sabbath. Uh, several other people threatened to punch me. Um, but but it, it and the the first interview I did with Van Morrison turned into an absolute shambles, and I had to walk out on him because he was so rude and unresponsive. I said, you know, you, you you're wasting both our time. Uh, I'm going, and so I went. Uh, but it never diminished uh, my love of Van Morrison's music. The, the, the fact that he could be, you know, uh, a, a difficult interview was just unfortunate. Uh, yes. you know, that, that's his character, but um, that character made astral weeks. He made yes. mood dance. Um, you know, so, you know, anybody who, you know, who can put his name to Beaton Police, you know, is, is godlike in my opinion. Um, yes. Uh, you know, it never never affected my view of the music. I didn't come away from meeting anybody thinking I'm never going to play that bloke's. Well, it, it, unless I'd already gone into the interview knowing that I disliked the music, uh, <laughs> there was nobody whose music I liked going into an interview. Uh, I disliked after coming out of an interview with them. Right. Okay. Did you enjoy? I mean, I know it's always a bit you know tricky when you look back and you know you know with the rose tinted sunglasses but i i sort of realized that 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 period where, where you were writing the reviews were such a big thing weren't they the music papers were such a big thing the magazines also became quite a big thing but you know that that period of the the you know melody maker sounds nme you know, possibly record mirror but you know I, I sort of realized that when a review came out the artist would have read it and sometimes you know hearing stories that you know the you know, I just I think it was David. Uh, was it 
who mentioned one of the NME writers that he'd be in a pub and Paul Weller would say, if you see so-and-so, tell him I want to fight, you know, I want to fight him. Did you enjoy that kind of spirit with some of the bands that you used to review and, and meet in the pubs and sort of sometimes realise you could get punched for it? Well, I, I, I think the writer that Debbie was referring to me, the Paul Weller, um, wanted to punch was me. Because um, I wasn't a, a, a big, big fan of the, the jam, and I, I, by sheer coincidence, they had a couple of singles out um, when, when twice when I did the the, the singles column. Um, I, I can't remember what they were. They, they were, they were months apart. And it, but it, it, it's just my turn to do the singles, and lo and behold, there's another jam record. So he thought he must have thought uh, uh, there was some kind of personal vendetta going on, uh, which there wasn't. Uh, but I, I really didn't care what people thought about what I'd written about them. Um, uh, you know, I used to wind Sting up terribly uh, uh, when I, if, if if I ever wrote about him. Uh, but you know. I had my opinions about these people and I wasn't afraid of expressing them. And mm. I encourage uh, the, 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 the staff on, on Melody Maker to, to be as bold in their opinions. And it was just, it was that period of the gatekeeper, wasn't there? We had, you know, as a simplistic thing, the pe music papers, we had John Peel, possibly Janice Long, Kid Jensen. But there was that kind of, we all went to those places, didn't we? We, we didn't get lost in a forest of kind of, where do you go to listen to music? It was like very Pacific, wasn't it? So the importance of you, the the photographers, that paper, you know, was was an immense, wasn't it, during that period? Uh, yes. Uh, at the same time, I wrote, you know, loads of, you know, glowing reviews of uh, bands who didn't sell any records at all, uh, despite the, 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 the editorial support of, uh, of Melody Maker. Uh, and the support that was, you know, perhaps sometimes duplicated in, in, in other uh, titles at the time. Uh, so just because you got a glowing review in the front cover on Melody Maker didn't guarantee any success. Uh, at the same time, um, there were instances when we put Suede on the cover for the first time and declared them the new best band in Britain. Um, one of the A&R men who had been... Uh, uh, bidding for their signature on the contract that it, you know, that all the labels were offering them, uh, said that front cover put their uh, asking price up by fifty grand, that was eventually paid by one of the labels. Right. So we, we, we th th there are instances where uh, the coverage that gave a band did did either help them or uh, encourage them or translate into something you know a little more substantial. Yes, absolutely. And you must be pleased to realise that Britpop was pretty dreadful as well. So even <laughs> in retrospect. <laughs> so look, they're amazing. I love these books. They're so great to, to go through. And they're such a great sort of resource as well. Do you um have you got any other projects further down the line once once the sort of um, dust has settled? Uh, no, no, nothing at all. At the moment, uh, a lot of my time is taken up by shameless self-promotion, uh, talking about the book and doing some live events uh but 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 nothing further planned i mean i don't think there'll be a third volume uh there are still plenty of stories uh but they they becoming perhaps more obscure bands that 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 uh, um whose appeal would be you know rather too limited for a a third installment oh my god i don't know it could be spirit randy california <laughs> 
we used to love them, didn't we, so much? Yes, I know. Anyway, look, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much. And if you want, I can always send you the the link for this, and you can always Please use do. it. That'd yes, be great. I will. I will. Yep. Okay, but look, thanks again, and um, yes, brilliant, and have a lovely weekend. And you. Yeah, take care. Thanks okay. a lot. Cheers. Okay, Bye-bye. thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. Indeed. And that is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Alan Jones for giving me the time for that interview. His latest book, Too Late to Stop Now, is available from all good bookshops and also online. And that's the follow up to Can't Stand Up for Falling Down. Do check both out, buy them. They might just change your life. Brilliant reads. Anyway, if you want to contact me, this is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you, you can via Twitter, Facebook and uh, Instagram, indeed, just do C86 Show. You will find me somewhere there and uh, also these have all been interviewed uh, interviewed all these uh, interviews have been archived so you can find those on spotify itunes podbeam it's true anyway have a great week stay safe